send me your Christmas songs. Make Christmas music and send it to me by next Monday. I believe it's the 15th or 16th. Do it. Right here at the top, I want to tell you about New York Modular Society. Do you live in New York? Do you want to be part of a modular society? They reached out to me on Instagram to ask me if I would spread the word about uh, their group. So I'm doing so. Do you have a group that you want me to tell people about? A new modular on the spot starting? Let me know. I'll shout it out. And they also want me to tell you about an event Friday, December 20th at 6.30 p.m. Um, the location is called Hollow, H-O-L-O. It's in Queens, New York, 1090 W-Y-C-K-O-F-F Avenue, Wyckoff Avenue. That's Hollow, 1090 Wyckoff Avenue, Queens, New York, 6.30 Friday, December 20th, New York Modular Society presents eight live modular performances, each artist exploring their unique approach in electronic music. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. Show starts promptly at 7 p.m. So again, please visit uh, New York Modular Society on Instagram if you're in the New York area or you're going to be passing through the New York area and you want to meet and hang with some like-minded individuals. And again, if anybody else has any sort of uh, organization like this or a new modular on the spot or anything like that, let me know and I'll help spread the word. Let's get into this episode. Pod Mod Bods, welcome back to another episode of Podular Modcast. We're back on track. We have a guest this week. Thank you for your patience over the last two weeks. Um, as I said before in the last few episodes that I've had some cancellations, some technical de- uh, difficulties, and uh, a vacation. So we weren't able to uh, get you the standard format of the show out. But today we get back on track with Ian Body. And if you're not familiar with Ian Body, then buckle up. This is a great episode. I really, really enjoyed this chat. Ian, um, he offered a lot of, lot of uh, tidbits and nuggets of wisdom that I wrote down in my little notepad. So, uh, you know, stuff about life, stuff about being a creative, um, and then some actual... Uh, some technical things with with patching so um yeah great episode and just can't thank ian enough for joining me so i'm recording this intro right now i'm standing uh at the at the head of the table here looking straight down my hallway at the front door waiting for the united states postal service to arrive with a package that contains cassette tapes of music to come down to I've been talking about my new album coming out for a while and uh, due to shortage of supplies for making actual cassettes, uh, um, my tape was uh, delayed by a few months and, and this actually affected a lot of people, I think. So Flag Day Recordings is releasing my cassette Friday, uh, December 13th. So go to flagdayrecordings.bandcamp.com to get the digital copy or a cassette. I believe the first 10 to 20 or so people who buy a cassette will be getting an 11 by 17 poster or something like that. So yeah, keep on the lookout for that. Speaking of Friday the 13th, I'm going to be playing a show with Infidel Tech, a.k.a. Daniel Miller. You've heard him on the show a few times. And Eric Schlappy, which I'm so, so excited about. It's a, a concert series called the Tacoma Noise Rodeo. So it'll be in Tacoma, Washington at... I hope I'm, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, 
Kevlt Mead, K-V-L-T, Mead. It's a Mead bar. I'm going to be playing at a Mead bar. Um, and I will be bringing the cassettes there. So if you want to come out to 306 East 26th Street in Tacoma, Friday, December 13th at 7 p.m., uh, I'd love to uh, to hang out and, and play a show for you. Speaking of waiting for things in the mail, I also got a tracking number from a, from a little company called Needham Woodworks. My 15U 120HP beautiful handcrafted wooden Euro rat case is on its way. I'm so excited. If you would like to share in this excitement or feel a similar feeling that I have right now, then go to needhamwoodworks.com to check out all the amazing cases that he makes. There's no one that is like the last. They're all handcrafted. They're all their own individual works of art. So please, please go support this amazing company. N-E-E-D-H-A-M woodworks.com Speaking of companies, also I'd like you to support Patchworks, our local synth shop here in Seattle. They have a great online store and they've just been absolutely paramount in uh, getting this scene here in Seattle coalesced. So go to P-A-T-C-H-W-E-R-K-S dot com to learn more about Patchworks. A few more things to cover before we get into this episode one, the cassettes just arrived. I had to stop recording this intro and go get them and they look absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited. Purple and blue cassettes. Um, I want to say thank you to all you Patreon subscribers. You're helping so much and uh, just the interaction on Patreon with you all has been uh, really fun. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a, a platform designed for artists such as myself who are uh, independent and don't have any sort of funding. Um, it's a way you can uh, help help contribute to keep the thing going. And it's anywhere from a dollar to a million dollars a month. If you want to give me a million dollars a month, that's fine with me. Um, but if you want to go to patreon.com forward slash modular modcast to check it out, I'd greatly appreciate it. I would really like to get to 110 Patreon subscribers by Christmas. How about by the new year? By 2020, I would like to have 110 Patreon subscribers. I need six more. Can I get six more people in, a, in the next three weeks? I'd greatly appreciate it. So everything that you've been hearing so far, all the music behind uh, me yammering me here, aside from our lovely intro song by Animals at Night, a.k.a. Greg Markle, um, I feel like I haven't shouted that out enough, um, but the intro song, the theme song for Podular Modcast is by Animals at Night, who is Greg Markle from Recovery Effects. Um, but yeah, everything else that you heard were patches that came loaded on my Zoya from Empress Effects. If you're not familiar with Zoya, it's like a, a mid-size chassis that a guitar pedal would be in, but it is way more than a guitar pedal. It is um, basically, it's it's kind of like a, a virtual modular synth in a stomp box, but it also can be an effects uh, module or or pedal. There's there's every type of effect that you can get um, in a guitar pedal. You know, there's there's fuzz, there's overdrive, there's bit crusher, there is uh, pitch shifting, there's delay, there's reverb, and multiple types of reverb, reverb, multiple types of reverb and delay. But what's really cool about it is it has this grid of blinking lights um, on the front, and each one of those buttons represents a different module 
that you can upload. There, there are VCAs, there are filters, there's LFOs, there's oscillators. Um, there's a, a really cool sequencer that can go up to 32 steps and um, uh, has like a ratcheting output, has a gate output, a couple CV output. So this thing's really robust. So everything up until what you're hearing right now has been just what came preloaded on, the preloaded patches onto Zoya. Um, but this is the first patch that I made. I, I just got it, so I haven't really had time to dive into it. And when it first showed up, I was a little intimidated by it, but to be honest, it took me about eight minutes and I was, uh, I was patching away. So um, it's really intuitive, it's really powerful, and I can't wait to get into more demos with it. Um, as we go through this uh, this month and into the new year. So go check out Empress Effects Zoya. That's Z-O-I-A. All right, my rambling is over. Let's chat with Ian Body. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me and to... Uh, to set up your recording stuff, it just it sounds so much better if, if we do it, it is, that yeah. way. It sounds almost like we're in the same room. <laughs> um, so going, you know, I, I I try not to do too much research because I like the the conversation to be organic rather than interviewee. But there are there are about four or five things that I really want to get to with you, and we'll figure out the order of those when we get to it. But I kind of just want to start off. When did when did music grab you, and when did you know you wanted to be a musician? Yeah, a long time ago. Um, probably while I was at late on in school, more as I was going to university, and uh, I used to love the Berlin school stuff: uh, Tangerine Dream, Klaus Schulze, bit of Ashra, Van Gelis, Jean Michel Jarre. Used used to listen to a lot of that, and I was studying of all things biochemistry at university. Don't ask why. It yeah. Seemed, it seemed I wanted like, to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to go to a little aside, when I was at school in sixth form, I was one of those strange people who was good at science and art. Oh. Um, if you can do art, you can do art. And I was good at art and I liked art. But of course, the uh, careers, people said, oh, no, 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 you, you can't do art. You'll never make, that's not a proper job. What you want to do is science. So, so off I went to university to study biochemistry, which was very interesting, and it was good being at university. And in my spare time, I did a I did screen printing. There was a, was a, I guess you can call it a public open access studio. You may have seen it mentioned in several several of my things in the past. Spectro Arts Workshop. It's no longer there, unfortunately. They turned it into a car park. But anyhow, oh. at the time, anybody could go in, and for a relatively small fee, you could use their facilities. There was photography. There was a performance area upstairs there was a screen printing and I was doing screen printing and then one day okay. at university one of my friends said you do know there's a sound studio upstairs and you like that weird kind of music from Germany I'm sure they've got some of the gear those guys use and I went oh, <laughs> so I'm not exaggerating I literally walked upstairs one day opened the studio door and there there was two VCS3s and AKS Revox tape recorders and I thought this is interesting <laughs> Got someone to show me how these machines work, and I was just hooked. I thought, this is incredible. This is another way of expressing what I want to do uh, create, create, creatively, and literally within a month, I'd packed up my screen printing, 
and I've done music since, and that was in 1978, so you can work out how long that is, 40, <laughs> 40 years or more. Wow. So that was up until that point in college, that was the first time that you had really um, approached making music. You hadn't played guitar or piano or anything I kind of messed. I kind of messed around with friends at school. Uh, it wasn't really a band. We just did daft stuff. I think I tried to play a bit, <laughs> I tried to play a bit of drums. It wasn't even a proper drum kit. Just kind of messed, messed around. And then I've got a vague memory. If I go back even further, I can remember at my nana's or grandma's, maybe when I was about seven or eight, she had an upright acoustic piano in the front room, but most of the family would always go to the back room. And I can remember going into the front room on my own and I wouldn't play the piano. I'd go around the back and make strange sounds and pluck the strings and just experiment. And no, nobody so had a said, propensity. Yeah, nobody said, oh, look, there's young Ian. He's into music concrete and John Cage and all this kind of stuff. Maybe we should encourage him. Um, so I've got a little a memory of that. And then I messed around at school. And I used to love um, music. Into prog rock was some of the first things. Bands like Focus and Genesis and ELP and all this kind of stuff. And then gradually when I almost had an, an apocryphal moment when I first heard... Uh, Fiedra and also Tangman by Schulzer and thought, hang on a minute, this is astonishing. How on earth have they made this? It doesn't even sound as though human beings have made this. And as I said in a few sentences ago, when I was at university, I found this sound studio. And when I found that I could also make those kind of sounds, something which I've always said with what I do is you paint pictures in sound as opposed to painting pictures with paint. Mm-hmm. So there's a very strong visual element in what I do. But basically, since discovering that sound studio, I basically haven't haven't stopped. Just haven't stopped. <laughs> I love that story because I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated. I think about this a lot, especially, um, you know, in, in context of my marriage. Uh, had I not, you know, made friends with this one guy at this one show five years before, I wouldn't have played the show at the venue where I met her. You know, so it's it's just these these one encounters that can forever change your life. Oh, yes. And I just love that you are at this place and your buddy knew what kind of music you listened to and is like, hey, you like that weird shit. Yeah. <laughs> Go upstairs and check it out. Like, had he not done that, who knows, maybe you would have your own screen printing or I'm sure you would have still, um, you know, found a way with your artistic experience expression but who knows what it would have been like it's well um, yeah i mean I, I was i was using the screen printing thing for a few months before i had even discovered this thing upstairs and it was my friend who said he should go upstairs and <laughs> i love that it was almost like a bell going off in my head i thought hold on a minute these sounds are amazing i can i, I can do these as well i mean things like um ec- uh, tape echo nobody showed me how to mm-hmm. do tape echo i actually figured it out for myself just using a little effect <laughs> effect send and I mean, for like an hour after discovering Tapec, I was bouncing around the studio. I was so excited, excited. It seems like such a mundane thing now, but at the time, it was really discovering it for yourself for the first time. I love that. I also, um, something that seems to be kind of rare um, is people getting into stuff like Music Concrete or a little bit more esoteric um, experimental music. I feel like... Th- People get into that after they are um, already messing around with the gear, but you you were opposite, and I, f- I feel like that's kind of rare from what I've gathered from talking to people. So that's that's pretty interesting to me. Perhaps, perhaps you got to remember in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine uh, MIDI still hadn't come along. Certainly, personal yeah. computers didn't exist. 
Uh, the first synthesizer I ever taught myself, or I was shown how to use, but I basically taught myself, was a VCS-3. Are you f familiar with that strange L-shape, one with the little pin pin matrix on? Um, I don't think so. Maybe if I saw a picture, but I'm, I'm sure I'm you recognise it. Well, over in the UK, it was it was very famous because all the early Doctor Who stuff and the Radiophonic Workshop used VCS-3s, and mm. um, it was and, and very difficult to keep in tune. So it was a very experimental synth, and also had lots of tape recorders. So it wasn't long before I was doing tape delays between two tape recorders, not a loop, but actually doing the more like the discrete um, um, music Brian Eno kind of thing where you have two tape recorders mm -hmm. separated by several feet and the tape goes from the left-hand one record onto it to the right-hand one, which is obviously a long delay, and then that gets fed back to the first one. So you build up these kind of frippertronic loops. I was doing all that before I even figured out how to play chords and scales on a keyboard. <laughs> That's funny that you bring up uh, discrete music because I, I kind of put a flag in the ground, uh, you know, temporally. When I found that album, that I feel like that's when I kind of changed changed my view of what music could be and how to make music up until that point i was just doing like guitar rock and singing stuff and i never really felt felt like i was expressing whatever it was that i was trying to express through music until i found that and just kind of went down the the rabbit hole of all the different stuff and ended up here as a modular guy but so yeah i, I it's funny to hear you you bring that up but i love that the image of that of somebody just you didn't, it seems like you weren't, um, I mean, I don't want to like put words in your mouth, but it seems like you weren't intimidated by the fact that you didn't know how to, you know, play the keyboard. You just went in and started experimenting. And I, I like, I like that image. Yeah, not at all. I mean, there's a strange thing with synthesizers that I've found over the years. <clears throat> and that is the guys who like synthesizer stuff. And I may be talking about the kind of stuff that I came up with, the Berlin school stuff. In theory you can do anything with a synthesizer literally anything any sound it doesn't have to be tied to a scale it doesn't have to be tied to even pitched notes yet the vast majority of people who are here do what they call electronic um, music really they're playing an, an organ with presets yeah. there's nothing particularly <laughs> adventurous about it there's nothing particularly far out about it and that's fine uh, i do that as well i play tracks which have structure and tunes and chords and I also do music for TV and film and all that and that's great but sometimes you with all this kind of stuff you really can go anywhere you want it's like walking yeah. through it's like walking through a forest you've got the well-trodden path where you've got all these little interesting kind of side paths which may lead somewhere or may not lead somewhere and it's in in life sometimes it's nice to try those paths just to see what happens yeah, I like that imagery because I like walking in the woods. But that's, no, that's a really good way, really good way to put it. I kind of so I got into modular because I kind of wanted to um, get away from exactly what you were saying at the beginning. There, I, I wanted to get away from an instrument that I I knew how to play because if I I have my my habits, I have my you know, my muscle memory things that I go to and I wanted to disrupt that. So getting into modular is like, I have to learn this whole new thing. And I feel like the music that I make on it is just completely different than something. If I have, you know, a, a keyboard synthesizer and my guitar and a drum machine. So yeah, it's, uh, I just kind of went on a tangent there. No, that's if, fine. If you've listened to the show, you know I do that. No, that's absolutely <laughs> a tangents are fine, which is basically what I was saying about little puffs in the woods off the little, 
right. just trying out new <laughs> ideas. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, 40 years, and if I didn't try new things, I think I would go insane. I have to try new things, either be it working with new musicians and different collaborations, but sometimes I just think, I think one of the most important things in any art form, but music especially, is the question, what if? What if I do mm-hmm. that? What if I work with this guy? What happens if, just, just what if, and then try and see what happens. Yeah, and you know, you know, I've talked to Todd Barton um, in the past, and just recently got to meet him. Um, I've talked to Suzanne Chiani. So some of some of uh, some of you people who have been doing it for a really long time, it 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 gives me comfort and hope to hear you're still excited after doing it for because I'm I mean I'm only two years into really seriously getting into modular, um, and really only about seven years into getting to electronic and. I've had this weird fear because I'm kind of like prone to anxiety and like, what if I just like all of a sudden lose interest? And I just, I see people who have doing it, been doing it for 10 years, 15 and then 40. And you're, I mean, somebody like you, you're still super active. You have your, your many irons and many fires. So, um, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm just like, like I said, you, it makes me feel comfortable to know that I'm not going to lose that, hopefully. Um, but also, have you have you had maybe stints in that 40 years where you kind of um, maybe lost some of your your passion? And if so, what kind of got you back in? The simple answer is no. I've, I've <laughs> never... I've, it is, it's as simple as that. I've never... I mean, there's been various life things that have come along that have means I kind of... I haven't been able to do what I wanted to do for a few days at the most or a couple of weeks. But no, I've always played. I've always, I mean, I had a full-time job for a few years or quite a lot of years. I, I became fully professional in terms of my music being my my income, uh, probably 2002, 2003. Um, but that, I'm not trying to be simplistic, but no, I've never lost that passion because I've always tried to do new things and I haven't really cared what other people think. I mean, yes, I do care what other people think, but not really. If I want to do something completely different, and obviously we'll, we'll talk about the tone signs things later on in the conversation, and I'll give the reason why I started that off for, is sometimes you've just got to go down one of these side paths and doesn't matter what the consequences, well, there's no consequences. The worst that could possibly happen is you yourself might not like it. So what? Does, does but you learn something there. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you learn so much from failure. So I think you're right. There are really no consequences. And it's, it's funny. Um, you know, I, I've kind of, I took a little bit of a break from working on actually recording music, um, kind of got into like a pretty, pretty deep depression and work. I was going to night school and working at the same time and I kind of lost it. Um, but I, I didn't lose whatever that, whatever that like coal in my personality that's burning that like makes me like, it's some sort of pursuit. I'm always after something. I'm always working on something. So I, I I just wrote in journals and I was kind of daydreaming. I'm always daydreaming about what the next thing is. You know, this podcast was one of those daydreams. Um, I had somewhere I was going with this and I kind of lost the thread. Well, I mean, one one way to look at it is the the music that I do a lot. It's a job, but it's not really a job. It's a lifestyle. For me mm-hmm. to stop doing music, you might as well say, well, stop eating food or stop going to sleep. I can't, I can't, I just can't. It's sort of so in my DNA 
that that's how I express myself and being a creative person. I think you've whatever you however your creativity comes up, whether you write paint or, or or do dance or whatever creative aspect you do you just have to do it you can't not do it if i don't do it i feel unwell yeah yeah you had just answered the question that i forgot in my <laughs> okay. rambling lead up but yeah but something i've been thinking about a lot lately and it seems like something that a lot of the people i surround myself and talk with on the show have that same thing and you clearly have it it's just that that burning like like you said you you don't feel well. And I, like I said, I was in a depression when I wasn't doing it. And I often look back on that and wonder was part of that depression because I wasn't pursuing the thing, you know, it kind of became this feedback loop. And so it's, it's just something interesting that I've been kind of, I like to dissect things and just like, what, what is that, that some people have that other people don't, there's people who like to listen to music and then there's the people that have to make it. And yeah, uh, I kind of I kind of stopped trying to think about it and dissect it quite a few years ago. I just accept it for what it is. I don't need to know why I do it. I suppose come from biochemistry background, of course, there's probably some strange mixture of chemicals in my brain which which made me do this. But I kind of don't want to know. I just do. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that too. I'm like, if I if I had the ultimate answer, would it ruin it? So I, I like that. I'm going to try and try and work on some, not thinking I about think it. And just some things in life you don't actually need to know the answer. I, I think human beings through fear or whatever, have this need to always know the answer to everything. And sometimes things that happen in your life just actually don't have an answer or a, a reason. They just, they just are. I like that. I'm going to hold on to that. Thank you. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I try, I've talked about it before. I try to, you know, I like to read, um, you know, some Buddhist stuff. And that would be the Buddhist answer. It's like, don't worry about it. It's kind of Zen, I suppose, but maybe it's this glass yeah. of whiskey I've got here. <laughs> 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 so let's let's just uh let's go back to you you're getting into this stuff in that room um at that that creator space what happened where do where do we go from there how do we get let's go to uh to the label you started that in 99 but that's that's quite a long ways after you first discovering that so what happens in between you discovering these machines and starting the label well i guess it's the it's the tail of the tortoise and the hare i'm the top the, the top the tortoise <laughs> just very slowly I, uh, within a within about a year of starting to use these things there was opportunity to play little concerts at the spectro where you know in front of 20 30 people with the tape loops and all that started doing some concerts then a little cassette label called um, um, Mirage in the UK got in touch said that well like what you I'm hearing you doing good stuff do you want to put something out on cassette this is 1980 so yes I put something out on cassette put another couple of things out on cassette got to 1983 started to do concerts outside of the northeast of England where I live uh, got the opportunity to release something on record, uh, uh, vinyl, which was The Climb in 1983, released three things on vinyl, and then CD in 1989, doing more concerts, uh, maybe even did a couple of concerts abroad in Holland and Germany by this time, early 90s, starting to get a bit of a fan base together, still doing jobs and family and kids and all that stuff, and just gradually, little bit by little bit, built up a fan base by playing live, putting stuff out. I also made contacts with people who who who've given me commissions for live library music for music for TV, film, and documentaries. Started getting into sound design because I've got this pension for doing weird sounds and people like that. So, starting mm. to make a little bit of income. Uh, 
From 1990 till 2002, I actually worked for Akai, which was a great job. I okay. actually worked for them, selling the big samplers, the S1000s, going to all the sound studios, meeting loads of contacts, getting across to the States, to LA, to the NAMM show, meeting people like Robert Rich over there, who I've worked with since, making lots of contacts, making a bit of money from these things. And then got a 1998 and thought, you know, I need a more cohesive plan. And one of the parts of this was to have a label which had an identity. I could market it in a certain way. I wanted it to look a certain way. I didn't want it just for my stuff. I also wanted other musicians who I knew and liked to be on there, either in collaboration with myself or solo releases by themselves. And DIN was launched in 1999. And then two or three years later, the archive job went boof and... <laughs> I thought, well, I'm 42 or so. If I'm going to make a go of this, I need to do it right now because if I don't, when I'm 60, which actually is where I am now, I look back <laughs> and think, I, you fool, you should have given it a go. I give it a go and it's worked out great. That's I love that. I want to talk a second about, because um, I've, I've always had a fascination about starting labels and I... I started my own just a little uh, digital one for for a similar reason. It's just I wanted to release mine and my my friend's stuff. But there's something about that. There's it, I, like the curator inside you. Like one of I just want to know if it's similar to me. One of the main reasons, not only to release my stuff, is just like I wanted to try to develop a almost like a destination for people to go who trusted my ear to find new stuff. I don't know, but there, that was a, like a burning passion in me for a while. And I'm yes. just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fine. Um, I do a lot of the curation point of things, not only in who I actually have on the uh, label. I mean, I get a lot of people who send me demos and ask to be on there and not all of it's great and not all of it's suitable to be on <laughs> <Right>. DIN. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, there's my it's it's governed by my taste rather than what I think is going to be commercially successful, whatever that is. Um, but it does okay. Uh, it's not my sole source of musical income. As I said, I do also have um, the uh, library music and sound design. So you mentioned a, a phrase before, which I use a lot, having several lines in the fire, which I think if you're in any form of the creative industries is a wise a wise thing. But I also curate things like the sampler albums, which is every 10th um, DIN album is a sampler album. And then, of course, more recently, the tone signs. And that's a different kind of challenge, a different kind of creativity where you're taking disparate tracks and you're creating a musical whole. Okay. Oh, I, yeah. I, I I really like the tones, the the idea behind the tone science, the, the tone science stuff. And just for the listener, really quick, um, you have multiple artists on, um, there's, there's three releases, three tone science releases. And among those three albums, I'm going to, going to list off some of the people on there. Div Kid, Todd Barton, Nathan Moody, Heinbach, R. Benny, Nigel Mullaney, you yourself, and Scanner, just to name a few and many hmm. more. So you've got kind of the, the cream of the crop, uh, going on this and it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> If you want me to expand on the whole tone science thing, which I think probably yeah. for the for your listeners who are obviously into the modular thing, um, you see, I've used modular since right from the beginning. I think in nineteen eighty one or eighty two, I bought a Roland System one hundred M, 
I started getting a little bit of money wanting to buy some of my own stuff. I still got those those original five. There was a rack of five. Uh, I've still got that and bought more since. So I was using modular synths way back. And mm -hmm. it's funny because obviously during the 90s, all the digital synths and computer software was starting to take over. And people were literally throwing these things out. You could walk past skips and go, oh, look, there's, there's, there's a moog lying there or something. People just didn't That's seem to... That's what I've heard. Yeah, people <laughs> just didn't... crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, it That's was crazy. <laughs> and I, I've never stopped buying or using these things. I mean, I've got a large surge system, which I bought in the, the early 2000s. I've got lots of other things. I won't list, list them all. I've always used <laughs> modular synths. Not in everything, not every day, but they're always there. It's always been a core of what I do. So it was a great interest, certainly the last five years or so, the explosion in interest... And modular synthesizers put a wry smile on my face. I thought this is this is very interesting. Um, and if, if, uh, three or four years ago, I I decided I was very. I've always been interested in ran, randomness, in chance, and how that can mm -hmm. inform the compositional process. So I did an album, the original album, just called Tone Signs, Din Number Forty Nine, which was me with five self-playing aleatoric pieces, mainly based around the large surge, but also with the Roland System 100M involved, where the composition was the patch, which took one or two days to get all the little subtle variations to work. So once it starts playing itself, it would never repeat. There's too many, oh, wow. it's too many intersecting LFOs out of sync and envelopes. And I put that out, and half my fan base went, "What? What? What? What is this? There's no drums, and no no sequences, and no ref, no reference points. It's just five slabs of sound. It's not not harmonic because I did various scales, but it's not really playing tunes. You're certainly not going to whistle it in the bath. <laughs> and then, as I saw the interest in the modular side of things, I was speaking to various people about this. And people are putting things up on YouTube and there didn't seem to be really an outlet for it, a professional outlet where you've got a professional CD with a nice cover that looks nice and properly curated. So with the first one, I, I just approached different musicians. There's nine musicians on each one. I was I had a track on the first one, eight of the musicians, some of who you mentioned, Ben, Div Kid, Scanner, Chris Carter as well. And they all give me tracks in different styles, but the fundamental things all just using the modular synth maybe a few outboard effects but basically modular synth i curated those and put that out got a great reaction to it so then did volume two volume three and i'm starting to work on volume four and i'm doing nine different artists on each one so i'm not repeating what which artists are on there they're from all over the world, all different styles. Some people do raw as you like, just stereo improvisation straight down. Other people do multi-track things. It doesn't matter. It's all done on modular, and it shows the huge range and depth of what you can do. And as a showcase, not only for what's happening on DIN, but I hope for what's happening in the modular community at large, I'm really very proud of what the tone sign thing is, is, is doing. Yeah, I, and it's it's it keeps with the the tone of the whole scene, the whole worldwide modular scene, which um, I've belabored on the show, but just kind of that sense of community. And I love this idea of you having new sets of, um, you know, uh, musicians every time it comes out. It's just a it's a way for you to curate and and quench that thirst of wanting to you know share your 
what you what you like with the world, but it's also a way of just kind of boosting and promoting the scene. So I just I love the whole yeah, concept of the. Thing. I mean, the, the community is one thing you've uh, you've said. Then there is a there's always a great community in the modular world, and you know there's a mm-hmm. lot of people who like yourself or other people who are just coming into the scene. There's obviously folk like me who've been around for a long time, and it doesn't matter. Uh, I can still learn new stuff from what you guys are doing. You can learn new stuff from me. It, 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 the sense of ego doesn't seem to be as important in the modular community, and I, I like yeah. I, I like that. That's something I've I've talked to with a lot of people, and I think the consensus on that there there are two answers that I've kind of heard repeating, and that I've thought one is no one's going to become a rock star or millionaire off of it. <laughs> no, so the the ego thing is kind of pointless, and two, it is expensive to get into, so usually it's people that are maybe. Um, a little older and maybe a little bit more financially sound. So maybe a little bit more mature or something. I don't know. Um, I, well, but yeah, I, just, I guess, but I'm not even sure if that's important. I mean, if you want to, if you want to get a nice, a really nice guitar, it's going to cost you quite a bit off. You want to, you know, buy a full I drum kit. It's still going to cost quite a bit. And I mean, it is possible now. I mean, you can buy something like a make nice or coast and that's going to, it's not that expensive. Or a Moog, mm. a Moog Mother 30, 30, Moog Mother thirty two, and that that's a, an entry point which is only three or four hundred pounds. It's not that much, and you can make some cool <laughs> things. That's true, that. yeah. Well, now with stuff like VCV rack too, it's just I love I love the idea of that compared like or paired with like something like modular grid. If you're curious, you can exactly. Yeah, I mean the, the software, the software modular side isn't personally something that interests me. I kind of been old school. I like I like the hands on hardware interfaces. But is a well, I think it's free, isn't it? Is, is, is it free to get into? And then you can buy it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, VCD that's rack great. Is, and then you can buy some bundles. It's great. It, yeah. At the end of the day, it doesn't actually really matter what tools or instruments you, you use. It's the music that counts. And you, uh, somebody who's really creative is just as capable of making a, an interesting piece of music on a free bit of software as somebody who's got a giant Moog system. It doesn't really matter. Hello, I haven't said that. Yeah. A giant Moog system does sound nice. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. It's but I'm I'm the same way with you uh, as you when it comes to the technology. I I have to you know have my hands on it. Um, and so I I'm sure I could make some fun stuff in VCE rack, but I just um, I just feel the muse the muse takes hold of my hand a lot more intensely if if it's a, a tangible thing for me. And I'm not trying to be you know some people kind of scoff at maybe thinking I'm a hipster for that, but it's it's no. just really the way my brain works. Well, it's not a case of scoffing. You you do what creatively works for you. If somebody else right. works one that works in software, that's up to them. I'm absolutely comfortable with that. Um, but for me, the hands-on thing where I can touch and tweak multiple controllers at once rather mm-hmm. than using a mouse. A mouse is never a mouse is never a very elegant solution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go back to something that you just said a few uh, moments ago. You were talking about how, you know, you you saw the the reemergence of the popularity of modular and the advent of Eurorack being something that kind of, you know, it made you grin. You were you were happy to see that. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, how, like, how do you view? I guess the Eurorack, the technology, like the kind of the the state of the technology, and then the the trends and and the direction that it's going. Well, it's end it's endlessly fascinating. I mean, you know, the the core of a synth patch is always going to be a VCO, a VCO going through a VCF, going through a VCA with envelope control. Very simple patch, the subtractive mm-hmm. patch. That's kind of the core, but there's all these incredibly interesting, complex uh, modules coming out now. 
Um, personally, I'm not so keen on the digital ones where you have a, a menu and you have to dive through the menu and press lots of options. For me, I might as well use a computer if I'm going to do that. But for other guys, that mm-hmm. works great. Everybody's different. The big surge system that I've got, there's something about the purity of the all all analog signal path, which for me speaks to me. And it might be to do with the fact that I come from the generation who that's what they had. Um, mm-hmm. And the VCS3 is a crazy machine to use. Nothing quite like it. Uh, and I, I don't quite see the... The point of various manufacturers constantly trying to do either in hardware or software something which is trying to sound like something else which was done 20, 30, 40 years ago. Just do something new. It's, it's, more, more, it's more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I see I see the kind of the pull in those two different directions. I've talked to so many manufacturers and close friends with a lot of them. Um, and there's, you know, it seems what I, what I really like about the the modular world is for the most part, these manufacturers are doing what they want and not really thinking about the financial success of it. But the financial side of it is a real, is a real side of it. So yeah, it's, I imagine it's gotta be hard to be, to decide. And, but I think everybody so far is doing a pretty good job. Um, I think, uh, I, think shout out. I think it's great. We, we, we all know the manufacturers who are seen to be the more successful and the, the, the quality of some of the things they're bringing out is great. But what one of the unique things about a modular synthesizer is everybody's system can be uh, different. It can be it can be honed in just to what they want to do. It's not like buying an off-the-shelf workstation keyboard where basically you've got everybody's got the same 500 presets. And let's be honest, most people when they buy a keyboard like that, they very rarely do their own presets. Mm-hmm. There's there's all these apocryphal tales of keyboards going back for repair, and they've still got the original presets in. Everybody kind of sounds. Everybody kind of sounds the same. Then, one of the things with modular is everyone can have their own system. I mean, I don't think there's anyone mm-hmm. in the world probably going to have quite the combination of modules that I've got or you've got. And I think that's one of right. the really big positive things of modular synthesizers. Yeah, and, and and just to kind of, it's something that I've spoke about before, but just in case people are just dipping in for the first time, um, some just to kind of expound on that point, something that's really useful as a, as kind of a learning tool for me is to either a pa- uh, patch on somebody else's system or that's B, scary. watch <laughs> somebody yeah, wa- or watching somebody else patch on my system. I, I had the luxury and the privilege of watching div kid Ben Wilson, yeah. uh, patch my system in my living room a few months ago. And when he left, I made a patch unlike anything I'd ever done. Cause I watched him do a couple things and I was like, ah, oh, I've never, I've never used that module in that way. So, That's cool. um, yeah, it's just, it's, it, it just kind of speaks to the point of what you were just saying. Like there's, cool. there is, it's, it's pretty good. Infinitely. And Ben know Ben does know his stuff. So, you know, you're going to get some yeah, good tips off Ben. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of talk about the uh, the library music and sound design stuff as well, if you're okay. if you're into that. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I guess which one came first? They're they're kind of related, right? But uh, kind of. Well, yes, no. I think the sound design one came first. I think it was Zero uh, okay. G. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that company. One of the first sample library companies in the UK. I think I was at a trade show with Akai and. I literally walked up to the guy, Ed Stratton, who had started off uh, as as Zero G. This is probably like 1992. And I think he had literally released two sample library albums at the time. Um, I mean, there's thousands of them now, but literally nobody had put Mm -hmm. these out. 
And I kind of went, hi, I'm Ian Body, and I do. And he went, yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, you do some kind of cool sounds. And I went, well, if you want me to do something, he went, yeah, okay. And no, I didn't even. Nobody even had an idea how to do a, um, a, a sound design sample library thing. So uh, Ambient, I think it was called, which is not necessarily the most original name, but that came out in ninety two, ninety three. <laughs> And I did quite a few after that, and also virtual instruments using the contact interface. And I've done sound design for Camel, Camel Audio, and Apple, and Sonic Couture, and a lot, of, a lot of companies over the, over the years. And it's 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 so, good fun. Yeah, it's that's that's kind of sounds like a dream job, really. Um, it kind of it kind of and- isn't it kind of isn't it isn't when you've got like two hundred and fifty six mm-hmm. patches to do, and you're on day one. You think, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, is going to take a while. That you know, you've yeah. got to have the discipline to just kind of do it, do a little bit each day. So it it does have a slight chore kind of thing to it, but uh, you, you you come up with sounds that. Um, are cool, and then I get to use those sounds before anybody else does, and in my own stuff. So that's always good, and then I, and then, and then I get yeah. paid as well. So that's even better. <laughs> so just for people listening, because I know this is something that a lot of the listeners probably do, or maybe fantasize about doing. Um, um, how do, let's let's walk through like a sound design project. Like if you're doing it for a company, do they give you, um, you know, a couple? you know adjectives to describe maybe a mood or are they specific sounds or is it more it, just like hey make some noise it, it varies um i mean an example recently and a uk company who do really high quality stuff called sonic couture i don't know if you've heard of them or not they did uh, a product called uh, haunted spaces by chris watson the well-known um field record recording guy who goes all over the world and makes astonishing field recordings and they imported some of his field recordings into this and then the guys at Sonic Couture said we'd like you to do an add-on pack where you do 128 patches using this piece of software it's a contact front end and you just basically do what you do we came up with the title Ghost Planet for my stuff so it's kind of science fiction-y Blade, Blade Rare Runner-esque if there is such an adjective there is now um, <laughs> and we're just weird stuff just just atmospheres again going back to that phrase I painted pictures and sounds so when you play these patches the conjure uh, an atmosphere a mood and you can use those in your own piece of uh, music and hope to use that as a starting point to inspire yourself yeah that's that sounds like so much fun um, now have you ever done like uh, you see, or you I think you have done some soundtrack stuff right yeah, it's not, not not so much soundtrack. It's not like, you know, um, Spielberg's couldn't me and said, can you do the latest soundtrack for my film, <laughs> which which obviously right. would be nice if he's, uh-huh. if he's out there having listened to this uh, podcast. No, it's it's a, li- a library music is where you, you write music in a certain style and then it's the library music company's job is to get it out into the world to companies who do commercials or film tra- trailers or documentaries or TV shows. And if it gets used, it's usually in the background, so it's stuff that you can easily have a voiceover on. If it gets used, mm-hmm. obviously there's royalties come through for that, and you never know where it's going to get used. You never know if it's going to get used. But over the years, you do a lot of stuff. I've done things about space, the bottom of the sea, the planets, you know, that kind of thing, ambient at- atmospheres. And it's been used all, o- all over the place, not necessarily in a big film where you would get a lot of money in one go, but lots of places where you get a little bit of money, but it all adds up to a nice little bit. 
Okay. Well, you kind of just answered one of my questions then. So by the nature of doing it like in a sound library, just creating a bunch of stuff, once that's done and then it's sold, you've been paid and it could potentially never be used. But well, I, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, if, it doesn't get sold. The library music company, basically, they own, they, you sign a contract with them, so they own the rights. And once you've right. done that, it's no longer your piece of music. They can do what they like with it. And if it doesn't get used, you don't get a penny. But obviously, the library music company wants it to be used. Otherwise, they don't get a penny. And it's it's a fifty. Right. It's normally a 50-50 split. And it can be used. I mean, my I get a royalty statement every three months from what's called the PRS, the Performing Rights Society in the UK. And it's everything from a few thousand pounds for some use to a penny. It just, but it all, but it all adds, it all adds up. They might use half an hour or something, or sometimes they might use one second. It just, right. it, it varies. The, the the range is huge, but it, it adds up to a source of income, and that uh, it it all helps. And you don't get notified when they're going to use it. You tend not to get notified. Sometimes you can be sat, you can be sat in front of the telly having a nice glass of whiskey as I'm having now, and there'll be a TV show on about the, the the space shuttle or or the, or the moon, and you think, hold on a minute, I recognise what that's playing in the background there. Uh, <laughs> that's what I was just going to ask you. No, have, that's happened a few been, times. Or <laughs> the, and, and then the, when you get the statement through, you get um, a list of of some of the. Sometimes you get you get a list of where it's been used. And trust me, it's been used in some pretty strange places that I probably shouldn't talk yeah. about right now. <laughs> so I've got another question then in, in this vein. It just It's just kind of a, a scenario that's making me laugh in my head. Has there, been, has there been a moment where you're watching a TV show and you're like, hang on, that sounds familiar. That might be me. I'm not sure if that's actually, because you've made so much. You're like, that, that might be me. And then you have to wait for the royalty thing to, and then you check. Okay, yeah, that was me. Yeah, kind of. If it, often it's in the background. <laughs> so, and some of the things I've done, I mean, I, well, amazingly, one of the, the Larry music albums that I've made the most from was simply called Drones. And it was basically 32-minute drones. And one of the drones, which I've earned... A lot from, I mean, you know, you're looking at tens of thousands of pounds here. It's simply a bass drone. It was, I mean, it's a very nice bass drone. It's done on a Moog and it's got nice tape echo and it just is a for a couple of minutes for a little bit of filter and a little crescendo at the end. And it's been used on all sorts of places, probably where there's a sense of something bad's going to happen. Let's have a bass drone in there. And for some reason, they've used this one a lot. And it took me two hours to do. <laughs> yeah, there's other pieces that's taken me a week to do, and I've earned next to, 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 to nothing. You just can't, you can't tell. Yeah, that seems to be the 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 case with the creative endeavors. I feel like I've made tracks where I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever done, and then, you know, people shrug their shoulders, and then I have people, you know, oh, I love this track. I'm like, ah, that one took, like you said, two hours. I wasn't. Yeah, it's just uh, the amount. Seems like the amount of work you put into it doesn't it's it's not a it's not a, a linear relationship there not necessarily again something i've learned over the years is there's no such thing as the best track you've ever you've ever done yeah for yeah, for, for one the other thing is once you once you do a piece of music however you put it out once it goes out into the the big wild wide world it's really no longer yours and people will interpret it in whatever ways they want and no matter how specific you've been and how what it means to you, you cannot guarantee that other people will think the same, and you just have to be com- mm-hmm. you have to be comfortable with that. As long as you, fundamentally, you should do a piece of music for yourself. You should have something to say. 
do it for yourself. But once it goes into the world, don't be precious about it. Because if you are, that way lies a world of pain. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, you're, you're setting yourself up for some serious heartache if you yeah. have a, a particular... Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something that we can lose sight of pretty easily. But I think the more you do it and the more you release out into the world, the, maybe the thicker your skin becomes about that or just maybe the more zen you become about it. Um, a, bit, a bit of both. So yeah. I mean, you know, the, va- the vast majority of feedback I get is positive feedback. It's nice. Everyone likes to have positive feedback. But if someone turns around and doesn't like what I do, that's fine. I don't mind. Yeah, I'm still at the point where I get, you know, 99% positive feedback, but it's the 1%, like the, that 1% that can make me kind of maybe put a damper on my day. It puts a much bigger damper on my day than yeah, the, the positive stuff lifts me up. Think about like, think it like, think like this. If you had 99 sunny days in a row and then you had one day of rain, are you really going to get upset about what the, the, the weather is doing? That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> I'm going to write that down, actually. 99 sunny days. I like that. I need the, I need these little reminders. Um, well, we're, we're ripping through this. I guess I want to talk about... Um, so you've done some... Uh, did you do like VST stuff? Do you do, you do plugins and, and synths, like effects and synths? Yeah, the sound designs, obviously the sample libraries on... I mean, they used to come out on CD and CD-ROM, but now the downloads where I've designed the sounds from scratch myself and also working for other companies who ask me to do patches for their own virtual synths. The example of the Sonic Couture on a few uh, moments ago was like that, where they had a they had a product called Haunted Spaces. Also, Ge- Geosonics is another one that Chris Watson did. They had a finished product and they wanted me to do an add-on batch of 128 patches, which kind of did my own take on that so people tend people like that tend to come to me because they kind of know the kind of patches that i do which is for want of a better phrase weird shit you know so it's that kind of come <laughs> kind of come for that they're not going to come for me for orchestral string library samples put put, put it that way there's plenty of people out there who do way better things job of right. that than i would Right. Well, yeah, I love, I, I, this is, this has been very inf- um, informative for me because I'm, I'm trying to venture into the world of, you know, making, making my living off of just what I'm doing. And I'm, 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 I'm getting there, but I still have a long ways to go. And it's the multiple iron, irons in the fire that's, thing. That, that's, it's, uh, it's not, I mean, making a living out of any creative industry isn't an easy thing. Because let's face it, for most people buying uh, music art or whatever, it's not the same as putting food on the, the table. It's not an mm. essential part of life. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's something they'll spend money on when they've got a bit of spare cash. Uh, and you have to have more than one iron in the fire. You have to have more than one income stream. And it's not easy. And it's not getting any easier. And probably, I mean, we talked about the summer library things I did. And I've talked about Zero J early 90s. There wasn't many. There was only like half a dozen of these things you could buy in the entire world. Now mm-hmm. there's, there's tens of thousands. Yeah. When I, yeah, when, I first, when I first started putting out vinyl albums, 1983, there was probably only five or six people in the whole of the UK doing the kind of music that I do. There's probably thousands now. And mm-hmm. this has just been part yeah. of this has just been part of how the, that culture has grown up over the, over the years. So uh, there's so many people doing it now; it's becoming harder and harder to stand above the crowd. That's true. Yeah, I just and I'm. 
I think there's that's that's kind of the negative side of the the advent of major technological advances and connectivity and everything. I think one of the I, I try to look on the bright side of this uh, bright side of this issue and think that maybe that will just produce even more hopefully just really really outstanding music because I, I know I know some people are are driven by that um, there's a little bit of a competition in some people that to create you know for creativity and and I don't know I'm hoping that we get some some pretty uh, some foundation shaking stuff when the, these this younger generation that are they're kind of you know learning how to be a musician on your act systems you know in their in their teens it's I want quite to see what they're going to be it, doing it, in 10 years it's difficult to know what that would be i mean i'm young enough not young enough i beg your pardon i'm old enough to remember when punk <laughs> first came on the scene in the uk and that really that really shook things up and i, I things seem to be so in in the commercial world things seem to be so straight-jacketed and controlled by the multinationals these days, that's difficult to see where something really radically new would come through. Um, when, I first yeah. start, when I first started playing synthesizer, it was quite new, although there's something quite amusing to me, which always, which always makes me laugh. I was playing VCS3s in 1978, 79, in my first concerts, and people would come out afterwards, and they would take pictures of the gear rather than me, and they would go, wow, this is amazing, this is the future, wow. <laughs> And I did a gig this this year, and people are still saying the same thing. Guys, these these things have been around 40, 50, 50 years. <laughs> it's not really the future. For me, what's mm-hmm. the most exciting thing about the modular uh, community is playing live. Music should always be about playing live. Yes, we've got we can record things and disseminate things throughout the world. But one thing you cannot really do in the virtual world is get the excitement of seeing a real human being on stage without a safety net potentially being able to mess things up but producing mm-hmm. this amazing sound and that's really a lot of the core of what excites me about the modular community is there's more people now playing live with synthesizers probably than there's ever been and i think that's a really po- a really positive thing yeah it's funny I, I i see it slowly slowly uh inching its way into um references in pop culture but very very subtle like recently i was watching this tv show where this you know really hip person is going on a date with uh you know somebody at this hip bar in new york and in the background there's a person standing there with a modular synth <laughs> and cool. they kind of yeah and they kind of shot it in a way that made it look like the guy was just standing there and not doing anything while the synth played the music so well there's definitely Definitely some misunderstanding and some some jab, some jabs being thrown. But it's it's kind of funny. Well, trust me. Going back forty years, I had comments. Oh, it plays itself, and I right. said, yeah. "Oh, well, does it? Well, you have a go then." But that yeah, that goes exactly. back to the, you know this this goes back to wandering around in art, uh, looking at art and looking at a Jackson Pollock or whatever, and somebody said, "Oh, look at that! It's just paint thrown on the canvas." I could do that. Yeah, but you didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yep, <laughs> I have the exact same feeling about it. Okay, if it if if that's the case, then go ahead and try it. Even with people who do like DJ stuff and play other people's songs, you know, all they do is mix other people's songs. Okay, go make a mix. Yeah, I mean, you know I mean? DJs like any other thing. There's really good DJs and there's, there's your, your, your average DJ and a really good DJ, a really mm-hmm. good music. They'll, they'll always stand out from the crowd because. Again, any artistic endeavour, the most important thing is what the artist is trying to say. You should have something to say. 
it's not just a case of getting a modular rack and then buying, you have got a few quid and you buy a few kind of things, you put it in your rack and you go, oh, what am I going to do now? What if I patch this? It makes a cool sound. For me, the music is the most important thing. These things produce a piece of music that is saying something the composer, the musician, whatever you want to call them, is trying to say. If you don't have anything to say, the audience can tell. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's there's it's there's something to it when you're when you're in a when you're hearing a live piece of music because I've I've heard from friends and and my wife even who who aren't modular artists you know like they can even tell the difference between a good and maybe subpar set. Um, but but they also a, a common critique I hear is you know it kind of all sounds similar. So it's like okay you're getting similar textures and and axonic qualities but there's a clear difference in that and i think you're right i think it's intent and 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 the voice and um what is you know what what are you trying to say what are you what are you exercising from yourself yeah it also helps if you have is if it looks like you're having fun on stage as well don't 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 stand there with a a frown on your face yeah. actually and also move i mean one of the good things about modular synths is uh, you you have to move on stage i i purposely off when i perform live i put things slightly out of reach so i have to turn around and, and i have to have to move around um mm-hmm. not that i've got anything about me, people using laptops on stage but it's not the most entertaining thing to watch somebody behind a laptop it's not really visually that interesting so there's visuals then they often have projections with modulars you can kind of move around a lot and i often buy gear like the air air, air resonant garden from folk tech i recently got and that's very cool because it looks just then i get a, a, a bow and i bow it live and it just has a visual thing people can see me doing a specific thing as making a specific sound and i think that adds to the overall uh, live performance aspect of it all yeah i really like that idea of kind of spacing your gear out so you just even if it's not dancing there is movement and i think you're right because just if you're watching somebody at a you know at a 3u case just kind of you know, not even moving their shoulders, you know, like that could get pretty boring. Um, but okay. So we're, we're closing in. We're about close to the patch challenge, but I just want to uh, talk about, um, schemes and ruses really quick. An album you did with Nigel Mullaney. I I really dug that album. Really good stuff. Um, how did you get hooked up with Nigel? Oh gosh, I've known Nigel since about, gosh, a long time, 1980 odd. Okay. Well, I used to work in a music shop for a while and he worked in another branch and we've just known each other for a long time. We did some, one of the very first albums on DIN uh, was under the name of Dub Atomic and DIN 4 and that's actually me and, 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 and Nigel and some of the library music we do, we co-compose, we actually do stuff t- uh, together and I've known him for a long time and uh, we did a concert in Liverpool and we had our modulus set up and it was semi-improvised and I think we made a cool noise and released it as schemes. And and, um, also Nigel's got a a solo album coming out on DIN, actually we're in December now, so it's next month called 31 Days. And that's really interesting in that he set himself a challenge a couple of years ago where for 31 days in a row he did a new piece, basically using his his modular gear and electrons and drum machines and then it's four and a half hours worth of music he did every day for 31 days. And I took those vast four and a half hours and I've curated it down to 11 tracks, 70 odd minutes. And that's going to come out on DIN. It's called 31 Days. It'll be out next month. And anybody who's into modular or electronics, I think, should give it a listen. 
I'm really looking forward to that. And Nigel, if you're listening, I want to have you on the show to talk about that. Um, just one last question on that collaboration. Um, are you guys meeting in a room with your setups, syncing clocks, and then kind of just going hog wild? Or are you assigning, okay, you, you've got the rhythm, I'll take the melody? Or, I mean, how, what's the process like with, with collaborating on Modular? Because it's, it's pretty difficult from my experience. It's, uh, it's a bit of both, to be honest. And, uh, yes, one of us has, has the master clock. I think it was Nigel who had the master clock. He had a polyend sequ- sequencer. I clocked to him. He tends to do more of the drums of the uh, electrons. I tend to do more of the weird things. He he was kind of doing the more of the bass. I was doing a lot of sequencing over the top. But I kind of got these little tricks where I actually play the sequences live. I use ra- random things, or I I use the um, make noise. Uh, what's it called? The um, uh, pre- uh, pressure points. And I've got to go for a quantizer, and I actually I'm I'm rotating the, the knobs on those up and down. So this little arpeggio is going up and down the scale, and it's getting quantized. So I'm doing kind of like live sequencing things. Um, I use a beautiful keyboard, I don't know if you're aware of it, the Analog Systems French Connection, the one that mimics the playing style of the Ons Martino. So it has this total mm. gliss. Yeah, mm-hmm. You actually have a, a, a metal ring on a wire, which is on pulleys in front of the keyboard, and that's how you move the pitch up and down, and then there's a little rocker switch on the left. If you watch any of the videos on YouTube, you'll see me playing the French Connection, and it gives okay. me a, a unique sound. It's like total gliss, but on a keyboard which if you think about it, is quite a hard thing to do. Seems like for your case, you guys both know each other really well and know each other's um, styles. So you can, you both know what you, each other can bring to the table. So it seems yeah. like maybe you naturally just kind of fall into a, a groove. Yeah. We're just kind of, there's a bit of kind of, you know, he plays one thing, I'll play another, but we know each other so well, the music just kind of flows. It's fine. We don't really have any problem, any problems. He kind of just, I, I've described it in what I was talking about a few minutes ago. He tend, tends to play the drums on the elect- electrons, sends me a master clock, he's doing bass, I'm doing these top sort of sequences which I kind of play live, and then sound effects, playing the French Connection keyboard, it's, it's, it works great. Yeah, well, if for those listening, go check out Schemes and Ruses. It's a really, really excellent album. I think I, I've actually played uh, one of the tracks off, off of it um, on a couple of recent episodes. Cool. Um, all right. Well, so we're we're going to get into this patch challenge, but before we do that, let's throw out all the plugs. Where can where do you want people to go? What do you want people to check out online? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is just www.ianbody.com. And for those who don't know, there's two days in days in body, and uh, obviously the Bandcamp site. I use Bandcamp a lot. It's it's certainly the only really good site for supporting independent artists and uh, labels. And that is dinrecords.bandcamp.com. Din being D-I-N, so dinrecords.bandcamp.com. And I'll put all of that stuff in the show description. Cool. Um, okay, so we talked about what kind of what system you were going to use, and yep. I said it's kind of up to you. Are you going to let the the words decide? I kind of yeah. I'll, I'll probably I'll probably uh, use my um, make noise seven use system which I've been using live uh, for a few shows this year because I've got a mixture of, mod- uh, mod- of modules in. Plus, uh, I've got an extra rack, little um, little skiff of a few extra things in. Okay. Well, 
my uh, little adjective and noun generator, and if you don't like this, we can we can move on. But it's it's it kind of it gives you a lot of really bad ones before you get anything somewhat good. And the first one that I thought would make a good patch is a fascinating awareness. I'm just gonna write this down. To... <laughs> I can roll the dice again. No, it's fine. Oh, just hold on. I've just written it down in case I forget. Fascinating okay. awareness, eh? Yes. Interesting. Hello and welcome to this demo. Today we are going to be looking at Switchblade from Acid Rain Technology. Switchblade is a compact three-channel switch and mixer. Each channel can be set to switch between or combine two channels of CV or audio with either latching or momentary operation. Each channel can be controlled with a trigger, latching, or gate momentary, or their respective button during live performance, meaning you can uh, do it manually, which is pretty nice to have. Um, this module is designed to be a great companion for the trigger, gate, CV, and audio sources in your rack. So I am going to show you how, uh, this is my first patch with it, and I thought it would be fun to uh, share it with you because I thought it turned out pretty pretty cool. So right now what you hear is Pico Drums from Erica Sins and the Talco, Taco, T-A-L-K-O from Palaxis. It's doing kind of the glitchy high pitch thing. Um, I'm going to run these though through the 100 grit from Schlappy Engineering and then into the herb verb. And now we're going to control the herb verb with the switchblade. So let's just hear what it sounds like before the mix is turned up on herb verb. So there is our, our 100 grit. Let's get some herb verb mixed up in there. That's fun. Okay, so channel one, I have a ramp LFO and an envelope from Contour going into the decay input on Herbverb, and I'm switching between those two um, CV sources um, on the fourth and twelfth steps of a 16-step sequence. So let's just take a listen real quick here. So there's a subtle, subtle little bit there. You can hear the, you can hear the LFO doing its thing. Now let's switch CV sources. Now let's throw that gate in there to switch between. So now we've got a cool little pattern going. Let's check out what we got going on with channel two. So channel two, I've got an envelope from maths and a triangle uh, LFO going into the size input of Herbverb. Take the gate out there and let's check out one of them. Ooh, that's pretty intense. And then I've got the gate going in on every sixth sixth step. But I, I, I don't have that plugged in right now, so I'm just going to let you listen to this. And now let's listen to our other CV source. So there's our envelope. And there's our LFO. 
So pretty significant difference there. Let's plug this trigger, this gate in there, to switch between the two. Now let's combine that with our decay from this channel one. So that's uh, that's pretty lively. All right, we'll take these out. Now let's just check out our final bit of CV here coming out of the switchblade. Another maths envelope and a square LFO into the tilt. And the gate switching between is on the first and ninth steps of the 16-step sequence. So let's put this into the tilt. I'm going to unplug the gate, too, just so we can... So there's our square wave, here's our envelope, a little less intense, but when we plug this gate in, so I have the switches all going, um, each channel is being triggered to switch in between the uh, CV sources on different steps of the sequence. Um, so let's just plug this all in and take a listen. Turn down the uh, original signal and let's turn the mix on the reverb all the way up. There, I just faded the uh, dry signal back in. That's pretty sweet. Let's take the, the mix on the reverb down to about 75%. So yeah, there there it is. Some pretty pretty crazy sounding drums. Um, and by using the switchblade, it's kind of uh, it, this is something that I could maybe build and have going on behind a bunch of other stuff. And because of switchblade switching in between these different uh, CV sources, it can it can add some variation to the patch, so it's not so repetitive. Um, while I could focus on other things, um, stick with us. We're gonna look at other ways to use switchblade in the future. Go to acidraintechnology.com to learn more. Okay, so your words were fascinating awareness. Can you tell us a little bit about how you approached that? Yeah, uh, the awareness thing often reminds me of when you're actually not aware of something, and then there's lots of things going on around you, and then you can suddenly become aware of it, whether it's fascinating or not is, is, is open to question, but it's that idea of there being textures of sound and something's just not quite in the foreground and then it can become in the foreground, either using a filter or VCA just to bring it into the foreground and then take it back again. So that's, that's kind of what I hooked on to. Yeah, I really like that idea. It kind of reminds me of a conversation I had with Todd Barton on the show where he was, we were talking about meditation and he, he does walking meditation Yeah, and he really, he really tries to, uh, I don't know if he, this was the term he used, but it was something like micro listening, like trying to just listen to all the sounds that are as far away as he can hear and just how much that actually can, um, 
influence your creative process. So it sounds like you're doing a little bit of that with yeah, the words. I, I do something similar to Todd as well when I walk. I, 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 I'm, 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 li- I'm listening all the time to the sounds that's going on around there. So I also work with Prime uh, Numbers. So I had a Hermod sequencer and I probed it in a very simple bass line. Uh, not really a bass line, just sort of some almost soft pulsed bass notes. And that was a group of 13 and a top line with a group of 23. So prime uh, numbers. So it'll, they will repeat, but it'll take a long time and you won't really be aware of them repeating. You probably won't even be aware that they're not repeating. So, but it'll just adds a little bit of interest. I quite often work with prime, num- prime, prime numbers in that way. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Where did you where did you come up with that? Was that something that you just decided to try one day, or is that something that I can't remember? <laughs> I can't I can't remember. It's one of those things. Going back to the what if, it's just why not use those things? And let's let's face it. There's a lot of maths in um, um, music, of course. If you especially if you listen to box, there's a lot of maths in there, and it doesn't have to be the cold dry maths from a textbook. That can be you can do interesting you can do interesting things with maths. And using mm-hmm. prime numbers is one is one of them. And then I, yeah, I, so- I sorry, I, I had I had, so I got a very simple bass line. I was using braids for the top line, where I'll change the oscillator um, model on that. I, I also just added some effects, a bit of uh, long, slow delay and reverb. Um, just worked in a key. I often work in key or a mode C minor in this case because I had the uh, synthesis technology. Wavetable oscillator tuned to a C, um, use that which comes in, things going through clouds where I'm manipulating things in real time. And I had a, I had a bunch of samples in a, a Disting 4 which I can play back in stereo and I just kind of went through quickly and chose one that I thought had this slightly mysterious kind of feel. And then mm-hmm. this, not really a tune, but I wanted to kind of be in the background and then come through. Then you become... Um, more um, aware of that whether it's fascinating i'll leave that up to uh you guys out there (laughs) well i can't wait to hear it okay um and uh yeah i just thank you so much for for taking the time to to chat with us today and uh before we sign off what would you like to shout from the modular mountaintops play music live as much as you can that is excellent advice and i advise you take it let's check out fascinating awareness by ian body
All right, there's our show. I want to thank Ian for coming on. It was such a great chat. It was really nice to meet him. Um, I want to thank you for supporting the show and listening. It's uh, it's just been it's been a hell of a ride. We're going on two years here pretty soon. Um, we're inching towards 100 episodes. Uh, if you would like to keep the LEDs blinking over here at PodMod, go to patreon.com forward slash modcast. Also, um, help support the businesses that support the show. Check out NeedhamWoodworks.com, N-E-E-D-H-A-M, Woodworks.com, Patchworks.com, P-A-T-C-H-W-E-R-K-S.com, and Empress. The Zoya is a lot of fun. I can't wait to do more cool demos for you uh, as the month goes by. Also, Acid Rain Technology. They have three modules out right now, but I've been talking to those guys, and I can't tell you what they're doing, but I can tell you to keep an eye on them because there is some really, really exciting stuff coming out. Um... So yeah, there's our episode. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, one more thing. Send me your your uh, send me your your Christmas music. Uh, I need it by next week, a week from today. So next Monday. Until next week. <laughs>